Welcome to the I Am Woman Project. I am your host, Catherine Plano. I am a creative soul adventurer, a modern day alchemist, and on a mission to empower the conscious people of this world, those who seek to learn, grow, understand, and become the very best version of themselves that they can be. Every week, we have thought leaders, change instigators, and inspirational human beings from around the globe that offer you profound teachings and recent discoveries from the world of neuroscience, positive, cognitive, and spiritual psychology to help you build wealth, health, love, and achieve lasting transformation. So join us here every week for new lessons on how to lead a life that matters, how to escalate your life after failure, and how to inject more meaning connection and resilience into your life and your business. As a way to thank our guests for their time, energy and wisdom, we would love to demonstrate our appreciation, gratitude and admiration. We would love to hear from you. What was your key takeout from today's session? By writing a review in Apple Podcasts with our guest's name and insight. And when you do, please make sure to take a photo and send your photo to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will send you a personalized cosmic blueprint for free. It's a report based on your unique birth chart to discover your true calling and how you can best make a difference in the world. Thank you. Well, this week, I am super, super stoked about our guest. We have the beautiful Debbie Millman, named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA. Debbie Millman is an author, educator, curator, and the host of the award-winning podcast, Design Matters, one of the first and longest running podcast in the world. The show is about how some of the world's most creative people design the arc of their lives. And Debbie has interviewed guests, including Tim Ferriss, Malcolm Gladwell, Steven Pinker, Amanda Palmer, Brene Brown, and many, many more. She is also the co-founder and chair of the world's first graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts, editorial director of Print Magazine, and the author of six books on design and branding. She has worked on the design and strategy of over 200 of the world's biggest brands and is currently chair of the board of directors for Law & Order S. VU actor and activist Mariska Hagate's Joyful Heart Foundation. It's now time to tune into this one very inspirational human being. Enjoy. Well, today we have another special guest for you. We have Debbie Millman. Welcome to I Am Woman Project. Thank you, Catherine. Really wonderful to be here. Oh, I can't wait to get into it. So the way that we love to start the show is we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to share her unique story. So Debbie, what inspired you to do what you do today? Uh, well, I think I was just born a creative person. Um, my mom uh, 
was a seamstress and she was always drawing her creations that she um, was sewing and hanging them up in her little studio. And so from a very young age, I started drawing alongside with her. Um, I remember being a kid and making my own um, perfume with baby powder and baby oil and rose petals. And I always put on little shows for my parents and made my siblings act in um, ridiculous costumes that I'd made and was writing songs and so forth. And just over the years, um, sort of honed into my creativity more as a designer and a writer than anything else. And I've now found myself as a middle-aged woman doing those things for a living. <laughs> I love it. I've got a smile on my face because we used to do that growing up. We used to um, get dressed up and perform for my, for our parents. Um, yes, yes, yes. And I found a lot of people do that. A lot of people. It's not an unusual activity. Um, and I, I love that that somehow seems to be a, a fairly um, common experience for little creators. Absolutely. And even to the point when we, uh, and we're probably going back now, maybe 10 years ago, where we used to hire a really big house at Christmas time and we all – uh, split up into groups is like about 11 12 of us and we create little uh, concerts for the family for Christmas time so we even did it in our adulthood and used uh, and it was it was very very funny but lots of fun so I guess the other thing that kind of um, uh, dropped in just now when you were talking about you've always been creative I get so often people saying I don't have a creative bone in my soul or I'm not creative what are your thoughts around that oh I think everybody's creative I think living is a creative experience um if somebody doesn't think they're creative they probably just don't think they're good at being creative but we all have the capacity to express Mm -hmm. ourselves and and just the way in which we express ourselves is a creative endeavor. So if anybody is worried that they're not creative, my my strong advice would be to just keep trying at being creative because I think that the confidence that you build with repetition is all that is really required to feel creative. Yep. And I, I used to say, uh, well, you've got a right side of your brain, which is your creative side of your brain. And if you can tap into that, I think you can tap into your creative aspects. So how would you go about igniting or inspiring some someone's creativity? I would, I would suggest find the thing that you are attracted to doing, but might not feel like you're good at doing or, or deserve to be doing. And in the privacy of your own home, try it. You know, if it's about writing, buy yourself a journal with no expectation other than to fill it up. If it's about drawing, then get a sketch pad and some colored pencils, which are always really fun to play with. And an experiment without telling anybody that you're doing it so that there's no expectation for showing it or sharing it or evaluating it or assessing it or judging it and just do it for the sheer pleasure of doing it and of finding some part of yourself on the paper in that way. 
Oh, I love that. The way you said finding some part of yourself on that paper. And it's true. I think there's this um, pressure that um, that it's, you know, people are afraid to be judged or it's not going to be good enough. Uh, I know even for, for me in writing, I, I was a massive obstacle before I was uh, a little bit comfortable sharing what I write. Um, how did you go about it? Because you do lots of writing, lots of drawing. How did you go about, I know it was it was innate in you from a very young child, but did you ever get in your own way? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was doing a lot of drawing, painting, writing up through and into my 30s. And a lot of it was to express or, or um, I guess express is probably the best word, express a lot of my feelings at the time of being rejected over and over and over again. And so a lot of what I was doing was commiserating with myself and venting. Um, and then when I finally did start to become professionally successful, because that was such a new feeling for me and because I didn't expect that it would ever really happen, I then began to discard all of the things that I was doing to sort of self-soothe my feelings of humiliation and rejection at the time and put all of my energy into trying to replicate that successful feeling over and over and over again. And because I had achieved this little bit of success and never had known what it felt like, I just wanted to feel like that all the time. So I essentially gave up all of the creative endeavors that I was doing and dedicated myself to my professional success. And I did that for nearly a decade. Um, I all but gave up all of my writing, all of my artistic endeavors to continue to pursue my my professional success. And for a while, that was enough. Um, and then ultimately, I guess it, in some sometime around 2003 or so, I started to feel like I was losing my creative soul and that it was dying. And that if I didn't resurrect it in some way, it might go away forever. And so that's really when I began writing again. I started writing for the blog Speak Up that Armin Vitt and Bryony Gomez-Palacio founded the year before. And then in 2004, I started, I was contacted by Voice America to potentially do, um, to host a radio show. And that is really what became the beginnings of Design Matters in 2005. And so those self-generated projects, those things that I was doing, they were more passion projects. Um, helped bring my creative soul back to life. And I've been doing that concurrently with my professional work ever since. And when you talk about professional work, because you're talking about stepping out of your creative, I guess your creative archetype into a professional archetype. Uh, what was that professional, uh, when you're talking about stepping out of that creative style into your professional, it, it was. Did that encompass any of the creativity that you allowed yourself to indulge in? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was in 1995, I started at Sterling Brands, which is one of the world's leading branding consultancies. And I started as a senior vice president of business development. And then within, I would say, two or so years, uh, became president of the design division. And then another year later after that, became a partner. So I helped build this consultancy for over 20 years. So I was doing a lot of um, create, I was doing a lot of creative work at the agency, but it was more in the realm of capitalist creative, you know? So everything that I was doing had to have a return on an investment and had to have strong shelf presence. And so, yes, while I was working on the corporate identities of brands like Burger King or Ben and Jerry's or Pepsi or any number of salty snacks or carbonated beverages or over-the-counter pharmaceuticals, it was all very business related. And it wasn't just creativity for the sake of being creative. It was for creativity to help sell products and move things off shelves and create shareholder um, value. Mm, so it's a very different kind of creativity. Yes, and, and I think that you must be amazing with time management to be able to have these amazing passion projects, which would be, which would be time-consuming, as well as your professional side. And what's your trick? Um, I don't know that I, I have a trick. At the time, I had a very elastic life. I wasn't married. I didn't have children. And so my time was really my own and because I was at the time so thrilled with the idea of finding some professional success, it didn't feel laborious. I look back at my my schedule now and, and think, oh my God, how did I not just collapse because I was working so hard. But I was also at a time in my life where I was making a career path for myself. And so that was a really big priority. And so being busy was a decision. And that's something I say all the time, you know, being busy, doing things that I really wanted felt like a privilege and not like, a, you know, not laborious. Mm. So you were working towards something you had an end in mind. I don't know that I had an end in mind. I just was feeling very fulfilled by doing things that I was getting recognized for doing. And so that was something that felt really good. And until it didn't, I, I wanted to keep doing it. Mm, okay. So that, I mean, this is a, a really interesting um, uh, conversation because we do have a lot of women in business, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, some work for corporations. And I think that sometimes we get, we do have an end in mind where it sounds like you were just enjoying the moment, being very present. Until it well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, yes, I I was really enjoying the moment, and it was thrilling, and I felt very privileged to be doing it. I also had business partners that did have a long term goal of selling the company. Um, the The senior partner and the founder of the firm was was had always had had a goal of selling the, the company at some point in the future. When I started in 95, that was something that we talked about right at the start. And so 
it was written into my contract that I would have the potential to earn into being a partner so that I could potentially benefit from that. And then I, I ultimately did when we sold the company in 2008, I benefited a great deal. Um, so that was always a goal, but I often say that that would not have been my goal. I would not have thought that something like that was actually possible for me. And so having a partner that did believe that was was also a real gift. I helped make it happen because of his goal, but it wouldn't have been something that I would have thought I could have done on my own. Mm, I love it. And this is where sometimes collaboration really does pay off, doesn't it, when you're actually working with somebody else? Because I think that everyone has their own strengths and it's and how do we collaborate and work together using our strengths to make it happen? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was very much an internal leader. He was very involved in the company structure and the way we were growing and acquisitions that we were making. And I was definitely more of the rainmaker and sort of face of the business at that time. I love the the fact that you actually uh, said the words rainmaker. That just uh, gave me a really massive picture of um, your ability. And once again, I mean, it sounds like you worked with some really large corporations. And I know that there's lots of, uh, as I mentioned, women in business and entrepreneurs and even women in corporation that listen to this show. What would be some of those things that you learned in your in your career when it comes to branding? Well, I think we're really at an interesting place in the discipline of branding. In some ways, um, corporate branding, professional branding has is a fairly new discipline. You know, it's not something that that people were talking about in the way that we're talking about now, say twenty five years ago. Um, it was considered really more advertising. Um, and now we're approaching branding in a very um, holistic way, which includes design and includes advertising and marketing and public relations and strategy and market research. But I think what's interesting is that the way in which humans use branding to communicate is something that's been with us for um, 10,000 or so years. We, as a species, have been using marks to communicate and record our reality, our stories, and our affiliations for quite a long time. And, you know, we see that with the caves of Lascaux in France. And now I believe there's caves, uh, art on cave walls that have been discovered that shows that we've been doing it even before the the caves of Lascaux. Um, We also have spent quite a lot of our history creating marks to define our affiliations in relation to God, for example. Um, there are hundreds of symbols that we've created at different times in different places, but utilizing the same methodologies for millennia, where we've been creating a way to telegraphically express ourselves to communicate to others without having to necessarily speak that we believe in the same things. And this has created consensus. It's created a way to uh, gather together to communicate as a group. And it wasn't really until about 200 years ago or so that these behaviors were appropriated by the corporation to create 
recognizable identities for products that would allow for ease in consuming and for growth and profit making. But now we're living in a day and age where once again, that power structure has flipped. And so citizens are using the same tenets of branding to create movements to try to create the kind of world that we want to live in. And so the same tenants that we use to um, create religious symbols um, and then um, food packaging is now being used to create movements. And I think that bodes really well for the future of this discipline. It's really not just about how do we make a difference in a form or a flavor, but how do we make a difference in our lives? So when you talk about movement, because I I understand what you're talking about, there's a real big, strong um, symbology attached to branding because I I remember quite some time ago, I really delved into neuromarketing and basically it was talking about um, how do we engage the brain and that deeper part of our brain that makes the decision, the unconscious part of our brain. And it's through, and they have all these different, how these different colors can activate different emotions, which I'm not too sure if that's what you, what you were speaking about when you speak about movement. Um, but no, no, I'm actually talking about Black Lives Matter. I'm okay. talking about um, Me Too. I'm talking about gotcha. the way in which we use these marks to unify ideas right you're talking about movement from a collective point of view yes yes okay all right so because i know when i'm curious about brandy because it's we've had uh lots of different conversations when it comes to how do we brand ourselves how do we market ourselves and i know storytelling is a big piece um and i i think I, what i'd really like to unpack and i know you have a new book coming out in october why design ma- matters um, mm-hmm. And maybe we really unpack a little bit about how that links into um, how does one um, stand out amongst the crowd? Um, well, the book is coming out in October and it's an anthology of some of my very best interviews. So back in 2005, as I mentioned, when I felt like my creative soul was being chipped away at, um, I was approached by uh, the Voice America Business Network about starting a little radio show. Um, Online radio was just at the very beginning of its tenure. And I was asked and invited to to do this little show. I, I wasn't offered any money to do it. In fact, I had to pay them to produce the show. But again, because I was so desperate at that time to do something that was creative, um, I thought, you know, this is something new and exciting and maybe it would be a fun thing to experiment with. And that really turned into my podcast, which has now been running for 16 years. And so this is a book that features about 50 or so of my best interviews over the years. Uh, along with really beautiful, candid photography of those guests, as well as a bit of a history and some powerful quotes from other guests that I've had. And is it, it's really an effort to um, create a, a place for people to go to read about how some of the most creative people in the world have designed the arcs of their lives. And my my show 
really focuses on a deep dive into the person's life. How do they make a life? How do they create something from nothing? How do they navigate obstacles and failures and rejections and their own sense of possibility in creating something from nothing, even in the face of um, hardship? And so, so the book is a bit of an overview of, of how I did that and who I did it with. Oh, I love that. And I'm really curious, I guess in 16 years, congratulations, that's, that's a, uh, an effort for sure. Uh, with these guests that you've interviewed over your time, what are some of the stories that really stand out for you? I think the stories that stand out for me are experiences where somebody believes so much in what they're doing that they're not willing to stand down or um, give up. And, and I would say that the one common denominator that I would say right now, I've done about 450 interviews over the years. The one common denominator that nearly all of my guests share is the notion that even if they don't feel 100% secure about who they are or 100% confident about their abilities, the desire to create something is so strong that that becomes their lead gene to make this thing. Um, I find it so interesting that so many of, of the people that we admire in this world still grapple with their own insecurity and their own self-loathing. The only two people that I've interviewed over the years that I can say without a doubt just were okay as is were, were two men that I interviewed in their 80s. They both passed away since I've interviewed them. It's Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli. And they're really the only two people that I can say were just like, okay, I'm, I'm good as is, you know, take it or leave it at this point in my life. Um, I don't know that they were always that way. I suspect not. But everybody else grapples with insecurity and meaning and purpose. And that gives me great comfort in my own moments of feeling that way. It's so true. It, it's um, it's one of those things, and we've had lots of people. I haven't done as many as interviews as you, of course, but we have had lots of successful uh, women on the show, and they do grapple with second guessing themselves. And it's really interesting how, very similar to what you were saying, that the driver for them that kept them going is that strong belief in what they were doing. It wasn't about themselves, and it was, if anything, they felt that um, they were constantly getting uh, in their own way, whether it was that inner critic or self-sabotaging, but this drive, this inner drive was what made them be so successful. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So you were saying that I mean, we all grapple with it, uh, including myself. What's one of the things that you do to help you move forward when you are up against your own self? Um. That's a good question. I, I tend to feel sorry for myself at first <laughs> and, and feel like I'm doomed and nothing is worth it. And I have a, a little fortune cookie fortune tape to my uh, laptop, which states avoid compulsively making things worse um, because I tend to feel when I'm down that everything is bad. And so I, I, try to recognize that and know that this feeling will also metabolize in the way that all feelings ultimately metabolize. 
and and just let it run its course and then realize that ultimately at the end of the day, I have probably one notch more hope and desire to do things than I do shame about the quality of what I do. Love that. That's a, I, I have sticky notes in front of me sometimes to help me snap out of it. So I have a, a bit of a visual. So you must be a little bit visual too to help you snap your, your um, I guess, yourself out of whatever you're currently going through. And I think it's really important for all of us to acknowledge it when it does happen because I really truly believe that sometimes we try to push it away or ignore it that it's there when sometimes it actually is there to to – it's got a, it has a purpose. It's, it's there to service or it's there to address something. Yes. I, I think that it's really important to question yourself. If you don't question yourself, you don't allow yourself to be curious about alternatives and different ideas and, and sort of challenging your own expectations of what is possible. And Debbie, do you have any go-to questions? I know for myself, when I get stuck, I try to dissolve the boundaries of whatever I'm experiencing by asking, what else does that mean? What else does that mean? What else does that mean repeatedly until I run out of uh, answers? Do you have a go-to question? No, not really. Um, I love the idea of that though. So I might, I might use that moving forward. Um, I think that's a great exercise of unpeeling till you get to sort of the, the bedrock of, of whatever the issue is. Um, so no, I don't, but watch this space. <laughs> Love it. So for, and I know, as you mentioned, you, you've, um, if you've interviewed lots and lots of people, if somebody was to say, Hey, Debbie, how do I design my life for success? What comes to mind? I think that people should expect that anything worthwhile is going to take a long time that um, contrary to, I think, popular belief, it takes time to be great at anything. Um, We're born without knowing how to walk on our own or eat on our own. Um, We are, I think, We somehow think that because we can communicate so quickly and with technology and and sort of be globally heard, that that's the speed in which our success should happen. And I interviewed David Lee Roth, the lead singer of Van Halen, uh, last year, and and I asked him what it felt like in the mid '80s to be the most popular person on the planet, because he was. Um, And he said that you sort of have to be careful when that happens, because when you get to the tippy tippy top of the mountain and there's nowhere else to go, you are often alone, it's always cold, and there's only one direction and it's down. And so I think that that is a wonderful way of thinking about how you want to plan your peak. And when I, when he said that to me, it really, really gave me a lot of insight into my own speed at which I expect to do things and 
achieve things. And I realized when he said that, that I don't want to peak until the day before I die, <laughs> because I don't want to have to look back at my best moment. I just want to always feel like that's in front of me. And so that's changed some of my impatience with trying to achieve what I want to achieve. Wow, that's very profound. I just received an etheric slap, so thank you. I th I think that you know we do. There is this um like sense of it has to be done now, and it it is. I I do agree. It's because we have we can reach, uh, and we have so much reach with social social media nowadays. But you know it does take time, and I think that sometimes um, we've had guests on the show where they 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 share. You know, people think I'm an overnight success. I've been doing this for twenty years. Exactly. But you only hear like we're in the, they're at the peak, and 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 you hear it that when they're at the peak, they say it's lonely at the top. You know, so I love the well, way yeah, that you say yeah. plan your peak. Yeah. Mm, that's um and it's about how to how does one slow down enough to enjoy the moment because I think that and I, I I'm including myself I do this uh it, it's about really about what next what next rather than sit in the moment what are your thoughts well I think that that's that we live we create this sort of hedonistic treadmill for ourselves in that we are constantly searching for more. And one thing that I learned from Seth Godin is the difference between happiness and pleasure. Pleasure is something that you're constantly seeking. It constantly needs to be refilled. Happiness is content with what you have. And I think that because we metabolize so many of our experiences, if we're only using success and accomplishment to feel good about ourselves, that it's it's a dopamine um, hit and we can't sustain that. And so I think that trying to understand, again, going back to your um, wonderful sort of asking exercise, keep asking yourself, why do I need this to feel good about myself if this is the only thing I'm using to fuel my feeling good about myself? Because then you really do need to examine um, what's underneath. Mm, I love that. And it's so true. You know, I think once you get a dopamine hit, it's addictive, right? Because it's like, I want more of it and I want, I want more of it. And so I think that's where you're, you're, you end up uh, constantly chasing your tail because you want to, that feel good hormone again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So Debbie, as we start wrapping up the show, we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to pick one word that best describes her personal brand. What would be that one word for you, my dearest? hope oh i love that and the last question is we always love to ask our woman of inspiration is to share three shiny golden nuggets for our listeners so that could be three practical exercises for our audience today okay um well the first is that uh confidence is overrated and this is something that i learned from the writer danny shapiro uh, she felt that confidence was something that we um, expect to find. And she felt that what was much more important than confidence was courage and that we need courage to take that first step into confidence. And that is what 
sort of takes us on the path to achieving it. So confidence is overrated is the first. And then the second is that what I started to think about after that conversation with Danny was, well, what is confidence? What is confidence? How do you, how do you really achieve confidence? And I decided that confidence is the successful repetition of any endeavor that, you know, we, as I mentioned before, we don't, we're not born knowing how to walk or how to feed ourselves or how to go to the bathroom on our own. We have to learn these things. And so we all have confidence in our ability to do things that we've done over and over and over again successfully. So I think that confidence is the successful repetition of any endeavor. And then the third nugget is something that I touched upon a little bit earlier, which is that um, busy is a decision. You know, a lot of people think that they don't have time to create their own self-generated project or to start a writing practice or an, an art practice. And usually um, when I hear that, I, I tell people that, you know, we prioritize our time. We make the time for the things that we want to do. And so if we say we want to do it and we're not doing it, it might just be because we don't really want to do it. A lot of people think that writer's block is really not being happy with what you're writing. So I think that if you say that you're too busy to do something, it might just be that you don't want to do it and maybe either rethink what it is you want to do or maybe not watch, you know, binge watch Game of Thrones or something like that. Oh, I love all three. And I just um, remember there was a lady we had on the show uh, a little while ago. She said that busy is the new stupid. <laughs> and and it's and it's true before the whole pandemic you, you if we if we look back and cast back even you know say 18 months ago a lot of the conversations we we're having on the show it's like I don't have enough time uh, everything's moving too fast and, and you know and it was that kind of common kind of conversation that everyone was too busy but it's it's really about why are you uh, so busy what are you avoiding dealing with what is it that you don't want to face so, you know, it, it led to some really deep conversation. But, you know, and now I think this whole pandemic, if anything, has helped to slow down and really uh, start going within and be more present than not being present, than, you know, uh, being very externally driven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Mm. So, Debbie, where is the best place for our listeners to find you? Uh, well, online, I'm at DebbieMillman.com and also Debbie Millman on Instagram and uh, Twitter. Great. Debbie, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing your wealth of wisdom, your stories, your time and energy. Thank you so very much. Oh, my pleasure. It's been an honor to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so very much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard and this topic really resonated with you and you think it will help others, please share the show with your friends to help us make a difference. And if you want to be part of our mission to help empower the conscious people of this world to learn and grow, then the best way to help us achieve this goal is by giving us a good review on iTunes or please subscribe to the show. The more subscribers, the better the speakers for the show, which then means more value for you so that together we can help the world become a better place. Don't give it another thought. 
hit that subscribe button and help people get their weekly lessons. And when you do, please be sure to let us know by sending us an email to collect your special gift where you have a choice from six guided meditations or an ebook to soothe your soul. Now, if you have any questions or special guests that you would like to hear from, please send us an email to support at katrinplano.com.au and we will get right back to you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Catherine Plano. Until next week, please take care of yourself. Much love and gratitude. Thank you.